Uh, my name is Ken. I'm the campus pastor at Mountain View Sunnyside. We are crashing here with mom and dad for a few more weeks until our campus is ready, which will be a beautiful day. Uh, today, we're going to look at Colossians 3, the end of chapter 3, into the very first verse of 4. Uh, we've been going through the book of Colossians. It's a short book with a massive meaning uh, and massive importance for us. And it's great to be able to track the arguments and the trajectory of the book uh, as it all hits our life. Week 1, it talks about how Jesus is anything but ordinary. He is the image of the invisible God, God with skin on, uh, sent to rescue us from sin. Chapter two, we looked at where that happened. That happened on the cross. That's the point where our past changed, where our present changed, where our future changed. Everything about us changed on the cross because of what Jesus did for us. And then in chapter three, we started to look at what it looks like to take off our old life and put on our new life. And up to that point in chapter three, it's all a bunch of stuff that applies to everyone. It's good for everyone to do these things. And where we're going to get to in chapter three today, going into chapter four, is where God is writing through a guy named Paul, and he starts to get personal. He starts to get close. He starts to get way too close for comfort, because anybody who's ever tried anything and wanted to get better something ever in your life, you found out that comfort is actually a bad thing. Right, one of the most comfortable places in my house, I say this to our Sunnyside family often, uh, is in bed, pillows behind me, ice cream in my lap. Like that is comfortable. I don't care where you live or what flavor you like best. That is comfortable. And the thing is, is if we live there too often, if we live where it's comfortable, we're going to grow. We're going to grow this way and we're going to grow this way, but it's not the type of growth that we want. What we're looking at today is where God is going to get close to us in areas that we might push back. The thing is, this is good for us. The discomfort is good for us. You think about exercise in general. All exercise is selective discomfort. Find something that makes you really uncomfortable and do it for 45 minutes a day, six days a week, right? That's exercise. Pastor Greg, who's at Sunnyside with me, uh, he's a phenomenal swimmer. He tells me that like his swim workout is swimming a mile. I tell him that's amazing. You know what Greg would tell me if I swam a mile? You go like this. Friends, we're gathered here today to remember the life of Ken Wilkinson. <laughs> he is a land mammal. He can swim to save his life, but not much else. So for him, discomfort in the water, like that's how he grows. For me, land. That's best. God made a lot of I appreciate all of it. I'm going to use all of it. And so he's going to go after today. God, through Paul, is going to go after areas in our life where he wants to put his finger on direct areas for us. And say, this is where I want you to get better. This is where I want to draw close to you. I'm not just going to leave you out there to try to figure it out on your own. I'm going to move in through the work of the Holy Spirit into your life to make difference. I'm not content leaving you to struggle on your own because none of us would want that Savior. Instead, it's God who comes near to us. And God who says, in the middle of your disaster, I'm there. That's where you're going to see me. That's where I'm going to move. And the first area that he goes at is marriage. God loves marriage. God uses marriage image, images and metaphors and illustrations to talk about how much he loves us. He says that he, that God, is the perfect husband. Guys, that means we play for second place at best, all right? We're all playing for second in this one. He says that he's going to love us the way that the perfect husband, a perfect husband, would love his wife. And so he's all about marriage. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, 
gives a perfect biblical explanation of what marriage is. He says this in Matthew 19. He says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains the difference between the man and the woman, the uniqueness of the man and the woman. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Right now, he's saying that all of marriage is from God. The good things that we can talk about with kids in the room, they're from God. The things that lead to kids being in the room that we shouldn't talk about today, they're from God. All of them. It's all from God because God loves marriage and God created marriage. And he created it for today. He created it on purpose because in our day, God wants us to know that living together isn't enough. Just living together apart from marriage as a man and a woman doing all that living together stuff, that's not enough. And the short reason, the short explanation behind why that's not enough is because God really cares about families. The reason why living together isn't enough is because God really cares about families. He understands that kids are going to grow up best when there's a husband and a wife who are locked in this together forever. That they're going to work everything out emotionally. They're going to continue to push and work things out financially, relationally, and spiritually. There's this togetherness that will bind them forever. And the kids, it's best for them to be able to grow up under that. And to see mom and dad around each other, loving, forgiving, going through all of life together. Hook up, shack up, break up doesn't work if we're going to follow God. And it doesn't work if we're going to grow and develop godly families that long live after us. Marriage is committing to God that, that we understand that it's tough. We understand that there's a lot that goes into having a healthy marriage. And we will never exhaust that to-do list. But what happens in a marriage ceremony? A man tells a woman, I'm going to honor you the best that I can for the rest of my life. And this is so much of a daunting task. And I take this so seriously that I'm asking God to help me. And then the woman tells the man, I'm going to honor you and, and follow you and love you and respect you as much as I can for the rest of my life. And this is such a big task that I'm asking God to empower me for this. That's what marriage looks like. That's why it's more than just living together. But we're bringing God into this unique, ever-changing, ever-consuming relationship. And so what does this look like here? What does this look like in this passage where Paul wants to get way too close to comfort for us? And he starts with women. He talks directly to women first. Because in that day and age, they were an afterthought. They were property. They didn't have a choice. They didn't have rights. And so Paul, seeing women as daughters of God, people that were made in his image, made with a destiny. Paul says this. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. That's Colossians 3.18, if you're just kind of catching up. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. He's saying, in a culture where, where women were property and where women didn't have, get to make any decisions, he's saying, you get to have a choice. You get to respond how, you get to choose how you respond to this. And the, the idea that he gives us is the same way that you and I wake up every day and decide, am I going to follow Jesus today? Am I going to make the decisions that have, that have brought damage and destruction into my life? Or am I going to follow Jesus today? And he says that act of surrender, that's the same way that you should respond to your husband each day. That you get to choose how you're going to respond. You get to choose how you're going to be loving. You get to choose how you're going to submit. And if you think, I don't like that submit word, it's tougher for the guys. We'll get to that later. 
but we get to make the choice as is fitting for the Lord. And then verse 19, he goes after the men. He says, husbands, love your wives. He's saying sacrifice for your wives. This is totally over the top in a culture where women were property. He's saying you sacrifice for your property. You show them more love than you show yourself because this is a self-sacrificial, never getting tired, always giving out of what you have love. And nobody does that for property. They do it for what they love. So he's saying, husband, love your wives and make submission possible for them. I think about this, and, and you know the argument right away would be, well, you know what, my, my wife, she's just not going to do that. She's not going to submit. You know what, maybe the reason why she's not going to submit is something you see every morning in the mirror. Maybe you're the reason. And so this is a point where we bring this to God, the God who's not just going to stay distant, but the God who's going to get too close for comfort in all of us and say, okay, God, you've said that this is how a marriage should look like, and I recognize that I'm the one who's responsible for the dysfunction. So as the God who doesn't stay far away, but the God who comes close, I want to surrender to you and ask you to lead me, love her through me so that she can, so that she can be a godly wife. We're taking it on ourselves as men to say, as much as it depends on me, our relationship, our marriage is going to be a godly one as much as it depends on me. Because as guys, that's what we do. We take responsibility for stuff. We run at the bad situations. We don't stand back and say, well, somebody should do that. No, we run at them. He says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Never treat them harshly. That means that harsh treatment and love, self-sacrificing love, can't go in the same sentence. That means abuse and love don't go in the same sentence. That, that sentence to the wives to, to submit and to stay as is fitting for the Lord, that doesn't mean submit and stay in the context of abuse. And as guys, we bear the responsibility of that, to love and lead in a way where it, it creates an environment where a woman would flourish and want to stay. And so that's us. He gets right after marriage, and then he goes to something else. He goes to kids. Hey, there's something for you. Another group of people that gets totally overlooked and disregarded, okay? Kids. He says a very boring verse. Let's just be honest, all right? There's finally something here at church for you, and it's a very boring verse, but it's got a really good outcome. What does he say to kids? Verse 20, he says, kids, this is bad news for you. Always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Like, what? I finally get a shout-out, and it's always obey your parents? Kids, let me explain why, okay? Because out of all of the ways that you could go home today, like locked up in your 98-point harness, that's probably not one of them, wouldn't it be more fun to go home today? Like, on that? That'd be awesome. You could take it off of a jump onto the stage and end up on the dirt and do some donuts and throw dirt everywhere. That would be great, right? That's way better than riding home in your parents' minivan that smells like dinner from last year, huh? That'd be awesome. The downside is we before we ride this, we got to ride something else. I think every family has one of these. We got to learn to ride this. Okay. In my family, this was the first step of freedom after the going to the moon space harness that your parents put you in. Okay. This was the first step. And in order to ride into this, you couldn't get out. You couldn't jump out the back of it. You had to stay seated. Because as soon as you jumped out of the back of that, boom, you're back in the stroller, held down like somebody, some crazy person or something. But first, you had to ride this. And kids, the idea of obeying your parents means that, yeah, you do the boring stuff like this. You obey them in every way that you can think of, obeying everything that they tell you. Because obedience here 
is practice for that. The more you grow up, the more you understand the value of obeying your parents, the cooler things you get to do. And I understand, I, like, I love sports. I played sports when I was your age, and I know that the most boring part of the season is practice. We're talking about practice, okay? So I know that practice is the most boring part of sports, and it's also the most boring part of being a kid, but you practice, you get good at obeying here so that you can have fun and obey there. And the rest of our lives, and your, your parents can tell you this, the rest of our lives is just one big obedience test. So what Paul is saying is you start obeying here so that one day you can obey there. And then he says the parents who sometimes get totally stressed out and they're sick of the, the, the areas, the times where the kids just don't obey. He says, all right, parents, I'm going to speak to you in the middle of your stress and in the middle of your frustration. This is what he says. He says, fathers, because we fail at this first. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Paul writes this. Paul wasn't a dad that we know of, but he's writing to dads under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is God, the father who knows all about this. He says, hey, your kids know you really well. And they know the things in your life that will make you go crazy from zero to crazy in an instant. Even in those moments, that's where you live this out. Even in those moments, that's where you demonstrate this. So I've got three kids, Eden, Ellie, Micah. I talk about them all the time. Uh, We just moved into a new house about a month and a half ago, which means that the to-do list is about a mile long, and we are knee-deep into one mile. Uh, If you're a male and you're a homeowner and you say, I have no to-do list, either you're a liar or you quit, okay? Because that's part of being a homeowner is your to-do list never, ever stops. And one of the things that freaks me out, I love electricity, I love structural, building stuff, all that. That's awesome. Plumbing, no. Like, that, that's scary to me because, like, plumbing, that's, that's water that gets bad places. And that drywall with enough water will never again be a drywall. That's not something I'm interested in. So a couple weeks ago, I'm under the sink trying to put some stuff back together, trying to install something cool. I'm really excited about it, but my goodness, it's, it's killing me. It's really fun to lay on your back and get hit in the head all day by faucet fixtures. Like, that's just great. Uh, and my kids could sense this. Like they knew this was coming. Dad is about to go crazy. Uh, and so I had run out to turn back the water, uh, turn the water main back on. Like that's how big of a thing it was, which means that's how much my head was going to explode if it went wrong. Uh, and I turn the water main on. I get back in under the sink to make sure that what I had was working on was, was, was good. And one of the kids comes running out. One of the three kids that used to live with me until after this. And they could sense dad's frustration. They could sense dad's fear. They could sense dad's thing that, that, you know, that drywall will never again be drywall. And what they had done was they had taken water bottles and they had laid all of them in a big, long line coming out of the bathroom. That was the setup. I ran right past it, didn't see it. And so when my head is under the faucets, under the sharp parts, not the easy stuff that it's nice to bang your face on, the hard parts, one of them comes around and like, Dad, there's water coming out of the bathroom. Okay, that is the worst sentence to hear ever. And so I get up from under the sink, run around the corner, and then I see this line of single-use plastic water bottles coming directly out of the bathroom, just like they said. And three kids who used to love me laughing their faces off. That's not a moment where I wanted to be godly. That's where a moment where I wanted to put them on Craigslist. We have a nice tent. They could live there. He's saying, dads, in that moment, that's where you got to be loving. And the reason is, is because one day our kids are either going to leave and start their own families, start their own lives, or they're going to bury us. And we don't want our faith to go into the ground with us. 
we don't want our faith to stay in the house as they go out. And being loving in all circumstances gives us an avenue to point our kids to Jesus. It gives us an avenue to tell them about sacrificial love. As we live as godly men in our house, we give them a model of how to follow God and love your spouse for the rest of your life. And so Paul's saying, even in those moments, don't discourage your kids. You encourage them to follow Jesus. 22, next verse, and this is something we're going to spend some time on because it's 2020. We all watch the news. First word of verse 22, what's it say? Slaves. Whoa. Like, how do, we, how do we interpret this? What do we do? Do we cancel the Bible? Do we just ignore it? Do we just pretend that it doesn't happen? It's a posture position, really. Okay? Are we going to stand over the Bible and interpret it through everything that's going on and say, you know what? This isn't working. This is hateful. This doesn't happen. This, this shouldn't be in here and just skip it and move on. Maybe be like Thomas Jefferson and cut out the verses that we don't like. Or are we going to stand under the Bible and say, okay, God, you wrote this here for a reason. They agree with that part. That's why they honked. It's their way of saying amen. We're going to let you speak to us. If it's here, it's here for a reason. What's the reason? The verse 22, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. So it's real easy to look at this and say, okay, Paul didn't live in the 1860s. He doesn't understand slavery. He doesn't understand what this word means in 2020. And we're totally right they didn't live, but... He's writing all this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it is completely condescending and incorrect for us to say that somebody who was fed words to write down by God was not as smart as we are, not, not as enlightened as we are. So again, we put ourselves under the Bible and we say, okay, God, what are you trying to say to us? What did you want to say way back here? And instead of just looking here, what we should do all the time when we're stuck with a tough, difficult passage is, okay, what does Jesus say about this? One day, a lawyer walks up to Jesus and says, what's the most important thing that I need to do? Jesus says, it's simple. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you can think of, if there's an area of your life, all of that goes to God. And there's a second, important, or a second commandment that is just as important, and that's love your neighbor as yourself. And so this ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself gets brought from situation to situation, book, th book to book, throughout the New Testament. John, a guy who walked around with Jesus, who understood anger and frustration, he said that the way that we treat other people is the barometer on which we love God. So if we don't treat other people well, we're not loving God well. So there's this ethic of love your neighbor better than you love yourself, this ethic of equality. And so Paul addresses slavery in that. Why doesn't Paul just say, hey, masters, I forbid you from keeping slaves. You all need to let go of your slaves right now. The reason he doesn't do that is because Paul, through God, understands humanity. And for every single one of us who have reacted to the mask mandate over the last three weeks and said, you can't tell me what to do, that's why he doesn't say you have to. That's why he doesn't say you have to. Because he knows us and we don't respond well to, you can't tell me what to do. What we do respond to well is love. And so Paul goes at this from an ethic of love, from a constant, unchanging, coercive ethic of love. And he uses himself. He uses two other guys too. One of them, his name is Onesimus. Onesimus is an escaped slave. Uh, he ended up with Paul. They both ended up in jail. Paul's there uh, because he's telling people about Jesus and it was against the law. So he meets Onesimus. He leads Onesimus to Jesus. They start doing ministry together. He finds out that Onesimus is owned by this guy Philemon. But he's not really owned because slavery isn't from God. 
And so Paul uses himself as an example in a letter to Philemon to appeal to him through love. And throughout the whole letter, it's one chapter. You can read it as you drive home, or you can have the the Bible read it to you over the phone. He keeps going on and saying, I'm a prisoner. I'm in chains. I'm your brother. I'm a prisoner. I'm in chains. I'm your brother. And in verse 17, it says, drop the mic, ending argument. He says, if you consider me your partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. His point is both of us are in chains. Both of us are sinners saved by Jesus. Both of us are here in prison. And if you wouldn't take me who taught you about Jesus, if you wouldn't take me as your prisoner and you're still loving your neighbor as yourself, there's no way you can take Onesimus. In our day, we see that and we can see God saying from thousands of years before, slavery doesn't work with loving your neighbor as yourself. Slavery doesn't work with following Jesus. The Bible doesn't back up slavery. The Bible absolutely condemns slavery. What's page after page in here? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's nowhere commanded in the New Testament? Own slaves. So we run this argument back to its source where Jesus says, now you treat them like equals. And Paul's bringing it out. He says, Masters, chapter 4, verse 1, be just and fair to your slaves, which means you love them as yourself, which means you cannot own people anymore. It doesn't work. Remember that you also have a master in heaven who will treat you according to the way that you treat his sons and his daughters. Remember that. And the things that he says to the slaves, that's that's applicable to us as we go to work tomorrow. The modern day comparison, it fits. And again, he's talking to us in an area that's too close to comfort about a topic that really, like, you're going to talk to him now about how I have to do my job, which I don't even like. Like, let's get back to just feel good pictures and stuff like that. He says, no, when you go to work, work willingly as whatever you do, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what's wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. Right here, we get to see the love of God. Because who's Paul talking to right here? He's talking to slaves. And what's his message in this? He says, there's something bigger for you than just a paycheck. There's something bigger for you than just clocking out at the end of the day. Because God saw you and he put you here on purpose. And if you do this assignment well, God's got a reward for you. So as we go to work tomorrow, as we go to work this afternoon or whatever your schedule is, If you're a stay-at-home parent right now and you're thinking, how am I going to do all this? We do all this for the glory of God. What's he say in 23? As though we are working for the Lord rather than for people. Because this is one of the areas where God moves in, where God gets too close to comfort, where God doesn't just say, okay, do that out there. We'll check in on Sunday. We're good. But instead, he's the God who loves us and walks with us through our difficulty, whether it's in marriage, whether it's with our kids whether it's our parents, whether it's, at, whether it's with our culture, whether it is at our places of employment, whatever it is, he says, I want to move in and I want to take you from there and lead you to me. And that's where we get to see the power of God. That's where we get to see the unchanging, unstopping, unquenching love of God that moves at us for relationship, not just for a longer to-do list, but for more of his love, more of his mercy, and more of his compassion. And he's calling us to relationship today in that, to stop doing this all on our own, but instead to to step into relationship with God who became flesh, who traded our imperfections for his perfect life so that his spirit can move inside of us and bring us to the men and women he created us to be. Let's stand and pray.